I'm Tony Duffin. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Analyphy Drug Project in Ireland. And um, we run drug services for people who have addiction issues. In the three decades he's been doing this work, Tony Duffin's been studying different approaches to preventing drug overdoses. He's been to clinics in Portugal, Greece, and Australia that specialize in it. And on this very hot day in July, he's visiting one in East Harlem, New York. I set off from Manhattan and from 35th Street and went up to 125th Street on the subway and went through all sorts of neighborhoods and places and wound up in East Harlem. It's a dense, very alive corner of Upper Manhattan, and also happens to be the place I stayed when I first visited this country as a kid, a million years ago. Tony walks around the neighborhood surrounding the clinic first. I thought this is where you need an overdose prevention center. There were people mainly in pairs who were using drugs. There were people who were dealing drugs. There were cars slowing down, stopping, buying drugs, moving on, that kind of thing. When Tony arrives at the center on East 126th Street, he rings a bell. A guy with dreadlocks comes out to greet him. His name is Owl. As in the bird. I don't know why he's called Owl, but he was very, very nice. And he kind of wondered who I was at first. And then when he heard my accident and said I was here to visit, he was like, ah, oh, you're from Ireland. Yeah, yeah. That's excellent. He started to talk to me about Irish mythology, which was really not what I expected. And it was lovely. That's a really warm welcome to have at the door. On Point NYC runs this East Harlem clinic, along with another one in Washington Heights. And in 2021, when they opened, the clinics became two of only a handful of places in the U.S. where people can show up, take illicit drugs like fentanyl, heroin, crack, or meth, and know that they're in a far safer environment than they would be out on the street. Tony finds the East Harlem Clinic to be pretty busy today. I don't know how many people were there, but I'd be guessing that maybe, maybe 30 or 40 people were in the room. And people who were, I suppose, lower down the poverty spectrum, people who, you know, clearly use drugs, they weren't there for any other reason. Tony says a number of the people in the room are also veterans, many of them with PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder. Besides OWL, there are a number of other clinic staffers there too, saying hello and checking in on people. Off to my right, there were a number of booths, so sort of places where people could sit and inject drugs. Some people were doing that as I went in. Ahead of me was another room where there was a glass panel that staff could see into, and that was the um, smoking area where people would smoke drugs. There was staff in there. There was a good vibe. There was a lot of banter, a lot of support going on. Yeah, uh, people were using drugs and they were safe. What Tony Duffin witnessed in action in East Harlem, users taking drugs under the watchful eye of staffers who make sure they don't overdose, is pretty controversial and is radically different from the prevailing approach to addressing drug use in the United States. Historically, the approach here has been to criminalize it, to throw anyone involved in the process in jail. It's an approach that has destroyed countless lives, sent untold numbers of people to prison, and cost taxpayers billions. And all evidence suggests it's also an approach that hasn't really done anything to reduce drug use or harm. Criminalization might make more criminals, but it doesn't seem to do much else. So what does an alternative look like? If criminalization of drug use has failed, might decriminalization work? And we should say here that decriminalization is not about making all drugs legal. 
It's a concept that's based on reducing the penalties leveled at people found to be using, carrying, or distributing drugs. This question of whether decriminalization might work if it were implemented broadly is not an easy one to answer. And certainly, the entirety of the drug law debate is too huge and complex to cover in a single episode of this podcast. But we've decided to explore a small part of it. I'm Omar Lakhed, and this is Without. On today's show, we head to three different states. One where lawmakers have tried the decriminalization route, one where lawmakers have gone in the exact opposite direction, handing out tougher and tougher punishments, and one where both approaches seem to be on a collision course, with neither backing down. How does AI even work? Where does creativity come from? What's the secret to living longer? TED Radio Hour explores the biggest questions with some of the world's greatest thinkers. They will surprise, challenge, and even change you. Listen to NPR's TED Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We start this episode in Oregon. If you've never been here before, you should know the state is really three different places, at least in terms of climate. There's the windswept coast, the lush Willamette Valley, and the high desert out east. Right now we're in that middle slice, the valley, where you'll find the vineyards and the state's major cities, like Portland. That's where Tara Hurst lives. I have a cavoodle named Otis and a mini labradoodle named Cookie. And I have a 17-year-old son who's amazing. That's, sorry, Otis. And yeah, that's our household. Tara is the executive director of the Health Justice Recovery Alliance. It's an umbrella group made up of addiction recovery providers and community organizations all over Oregon. And she's been clean for 27 years. I'm a person in long-term recovery, so for me that means no substances since September 8th, 1996. It was predominantly alcohol um, and, you know, everything and anything else that I could put in my body, but alcohol was definitely my drug of choice. When Tara decided she wanted to try and stop drinking and using drugs, she got into a five-day detox program at a hospital in upstate New York. I was still on my family insurance, then went on to a 28-day program, which basically spit me out very vulnerable into back into the community where I had been most active in my addiction. It's not until Tara got into a 90-day treatment program in Florida that she was able to stop drinking. That was where I really had hit kind of my emotional bottom that I needed and got the support because it was a much longer treatment program. And it was also, I think, just getting out. I was lucky and fortunate enough to be able to get out of where I was uh, to be able to get into recovery. At the beginning of her recovery, Tara wasn't paying attention to the drug policy landscape in the U.S. I was not paying attention to law. 
I was not paying attention to politics. I was living in South Florida and trying to survive and find a way to want to live because I had not wanted to live by the end of my addiction and I hadn't planned on living past 20. But today, Tara pays a lot of attention to law and politics, in part because she and the Health Justice Recovery Alliance have been some of the most vocal proponents of Measure 110. Oregon voters passed the ballot measure in 2020, and here's the gist of it. If someone is found to be in possession of an illegal drug, they're not arrested, they're not put in jail or forced to enter a drug treatment program. Instead, they're fined and offered access to services, from mental health counseling to help finding housing. When Measure 110 went into effect in early 2021, it made Oregon the most progressive state in the nation on the issue of decriminalizing drug use. Basically, anyone caught with a small amount of drugs in this state will no longer get hit with a criminal penalty. It will become a civil penalty. So it's a $100 fine and a ticket with the intent of making sure that that ticket can be a bridge to receiving services. Tara says Measure 110 also diverts $300 million of state marijuana sales tax money to a treatment and recovery fund. Which basically means that we're investing in services instead of necessarily investing in the criminal legal response to uh, drug addiction and, and substance use. She says thanks to the measure, 160 organizations across the state will now have more funds to help residents find housing, jobs, medical treatment, and harm reduction services. Harm reduction is exactly what it sounds like. It's meant to prevent overdoses, in part by downplaying the stigma around drug use, and instead putting the emphasis on availability of services and access to help. Those are all the critical components of a continuum of care to get somebody from a tent to their own place and working and kind of getting their kids back and and being able to thrive in recovery. And here's where things stand now in Oregon in the aftermath of the passage of Measure 110. Substance abuse rates and overdose deaths are up sharply across the state. And a group of policymakers and real estate developers are pushing for changes to the measure that would criminalize drug possession again and force users into treatment. The public are frustrated because we are experiencing the aftermath of the pandemic, right? There was an increase, what, 25% increase in eviction rates. Our houseless um, crisis has gotten worse, not better. Fentanyl came into the West Coast market. A recent survey conducted by Emerson College found that many Oregonians are now in favor of repealing Measure 110 altogether. 56% of Oregonians say, enough is enough, get rid of it already. And when we dig deeper, the numbers get a bit more lopsided. When asked if parts of 110 should be repealed to bring back penalties for possession of small amounts of hard drugs or leave 110 as it is, 64% say consequences for hard drugs need to return. So did Measure 110 create homelessness? Absolutely not. Did it create more overdose deaths? There's research coming out that I think is probably going to show that, no, that's not actually the case. The research Tara's referring to was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in September. They looked at the number of fatal drug overdoses in Oregon and Washington one year after drug decriminalization laws went into effect. And they found that laws like Measure 110 
did not change fatal drug overdose rates. And we didn't create crime. And stealing cars or fueling your addiction through criminal behavior is still criminal. We're just saying that a gram of heroin in your pocket is no longer criminal. Thing is, Measure 110 came along at a time when just about everything was going wrong in Oregon, on the drug front, and pretty well everywhere else. It was the pandemic, and in 2021, when the law went into effect, the state was among the highest in the country when it came to rates of addiction, and among the lowest in the country when it came to providing access to treatment. And whatever effect Measure 110 has had, it's difficult to untangle it from the effects of a whole host of social issues the state's also grappling with. Tara admits Measure 110 isn't perfect, but it's still keeping thousands of people out of prison, which has already saved taxpayers millions of dollars. That's a substantial amount of people who don't have criminal records, and those can't be understated. Part of the reason so many people have turned against the measure is, well, optics. Whatever good decriminalization has done, however many people have been spared a potentially life-ruining criminal sentence, there are a lot of Oregonians who just don't want to see drug use out in the open. People keep comparing it to, I can't drink a beer on the street, so why should somebody be able to smoke fentanyl on the street? There's lots of bars for you to go drink a beer in, right? We could even call them harm reduction sites that are for people so that they can drink somewhat safely and be okay. There is nothing like that when it comes to drugs. Same with weed. That's why we smell it everywhere. So I think we need to have that conversation. Tara's advocating for overdose prevention sites opening up in Oregon, like the center we heard about at the beginning of this episode in East Harlem. That might be a tough sell, though, because if the Emerson College poll is to be believed, more Oregonians might want to go in the exact opposite direction to return to the decades-long American tradition of treating drug use not as a mental health issue, or with compassion, but as a moral failing, a sin to be punished. Not surprisingly, drug policies in the Deep South are totally different from the ones voters have passed in the Pacific Northwest. Consider Louisiana, one of the most geographically unique states in the country, a shredded landscape of marshland where the Gulf of Mexico intrudes on the edge of the continent. While Oregon experiments with decriminalization, some lawmakers in Louisiana are convinced the only answer is to impose even harsher sentences around possession and distribution. House will come to order. Roll call, members. Representative Stefanski. Earlier this year, Republican Representative John Stefanski introduced House Bill 90, which mandates severe sentences around possession and distribution of fentanyl. Fentanyl is so deadly in such small amounts that we have to send a message throughout the state that there's a... I get it. What you're hearing is a debate on the Louisiana House floor from June of this year. All of us agree that we have a serious problem with fentanyl. Democratic Representative Denise Marcel is questioning Representative Stefanski about House Bill 90. You know, I remember uh, during the era of cocaine and we thought that putting everybody in jail forever was going to help the problem. So I'm just trying to figure out, do you believe that these different penalties will result in less use of fentanyl. I I do, and here's why. Basically, the bill states that if someone is found with 28 grams of fentanyl, that's just under an ounce, they're sentenced to 5 to 40 years in prison without parole. If they have 250 grams, they're going to prison for life. And we should say that we reached out to Stefanski to come on the podcast to talk more about his bill, but 
He never got back to us. My bill originally was really based on what we, how we used to treat heroin. And when I've talked with law enforcement, when I've, when I've spoken with people that were around in, in the criminal justice system, when heroin was mandated life, there was a chilling effect that was sent through Louisiana. That was always my original intent. We're not going that far with this bill, but we do. Well, on thank a, God. Yeah, I know, and I know you're happy about that. But what we're doing is on a first conviction for the major for a major dealer who has more than 250 grams that has fentanyl in it. You can go to jail for life, and I think that message that gets sent throughout Louisiana about that will have an effect. Ever since the beginning of the war on drugs in the 1970s. This is basically what the American approach to drug use has looked like. Tougher drug laws and longer prison sentences, all predicated on the idea that if you just make the punishment severe enough, you will scare people right off drugs. To get more insight into the drug policy landscape in Louisiana, we called a professor in Baton Rouge. I'm Ken Levy. I'm the Holt B. Harrison Distinguished Professor of Law at LSU Law School. I've been teaching there for 15 years. I concentrate my teaching, my courses I teach are criminal law courses. Like Tara Hurst, Ken is also an animal lover. He's got four dogs roaming around behind him and a black kitten whom he just found injured the other night by the side of the road. They make the world such a better place. Ken's not the biggest booster of this idea of locking people up in prison for long periods of time. But it's not just an opinion. He's got data to back this up. What study after study shows, however, is that Merely increasing the punishment, making it more and more severe, has diminishing returns. The people who are not deterred by the threat of five years in jail are generally not going to be any more deterred by the threat of 10 or 15 years in jail. And what what kind of bothers me about that approach is it's lazy. Lazy because you can't really solve drug use with the sole solution of putting users or dealers behind bars. If you really want to solve this problem, you're going to have to take a multi-pronged approach and it's going to have to go at the roots of the the problem. And the roots of the problem are the, why is there such demand for drugs? The supply is always going to be there. Why is the demand so high? And try to get at the psychological needs that drugs are supposed to be addressing for these people. Ken acknowledges that figuring out the causes of why people gravitate towards drugs like fentanyl is no easy feat. And all the wraparound services needed to help addicts like the ones funded by Measure 110 in Oregon, are expensive. There is job training needs, there's mental health therapy, there is depression, despair, there's hopelessness. Addressing all that as a politician, well, that's a lot harder than just saying, let's throw them in jail and, and you know, hope that that solves the problem and it'll just go away, because it won't. Louisiana's House Bill 90 that's the one we heard debate of earlier, that can put fentanyl dealers in prison for life, is a particularly interesting way to try and address drug use in the state, in large part because of the specific drug it targets. In the last couple of years, fentanyl has become the deadliest drug in America. It's the leading killer in Louisiana for people under the age of 45, causing more deaths than car accidents or guns or suicide. But many people who overdose on fentanyl don't even know they're taking it in the first place. You can get a lethal dose of it from just 3 milligrams, which is the equivalent of about 7 grains of table salt. Often traces of the white powder show up in heroin, cocaine, meth, even marijuana. And now these unwitting users, if they survive an accidental overdose in Louisiana, 
are also subject to punishments of up to life in prison, in a state that already throws a lot of people behind bars. Louisiana has the greatest incarceration rate in the United States per capita, and the United States has one of the greatest incarceration rates per capita in the world. So we are kind of ground zero for mass incarceration here in Louisiana. And soon, the state's prisons may get even more crowded. Representative Stefanski's House Bill 90 went into effect in August. Louisiana isn't the only state to enact punitive drug laws this year. Hundreds of new fentanyl crime bills are now being considered across the U.S., and some have passed recently in Virginia, Tennessee, and Iowa. The aim of these laws, of course, is to slow down the record-breaking number of opioid overdoses. Every day, some 200 people are dying from them, according to the National Institute on Drug Abuse. But if you want to reduce fentanyl overdoses, evidence shows more prison time isn't necessarily the solution. And we should pause here to say that there's no shortage of very potent drugs in prisons. Let's, you know, arrest, 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 have ever harsher sentences, and hope that that will make the problem go away. And it hasn't, right? You know, this has been the model that the United States has used since the 1980s. And it has landed us where we are today with the highest rate of overdoses you know, in history. Maria McFarland Sanchez Moreno works for Human Rights Watch in Washington, D.C. She's a lawyer who studied drug and criminal justice policy extensively. As acting deputy program director, Maria oversees the work of several different departments at Human Rights Watch. And recently, she worked on a study with the American Civil Liberties Union called Every 25 Seconds, The Human Toll of Criminalizing Drug Use in the United States. So the main findings of that study were that simple drug possession for personal use is the single most arrested offense in the United States. Every 25 seconds at the time, somebody was arrested for personal drug use. For the study, Maria's team and the ACLU conducted 365 interviews in 2015 and 2016, mostly with people prosecuted for drug use in Louisiana, Texas, Florida, and New York City. And the racial dynamic was that basically for every one white person arrested for drug possession, three black people were. Even though we know from lots of data that white and black people use drugs at essentially the same rates. The study showed that the long-term consequences of incarceration and having a criminal record for possession of drugs are devastating, both for the people locked up and for their families. And we found that in most cases, it's a revolving door, right? People who are struggling with problematic drug use need help. They need access to treatment, but they also need access to other services, housing, ways to access employment, in many cases, mental health support. And they're struggling in so many ways, but the criminal legal system doesn't offer those supports. Instead, you lock people up and then you release them, and they have even more barriers to overcome because they can't access jobs, because they have criminal records, they can't access public housing, they have trouble accessing food stamps, education, and actually turns into a trap for people who really need help, not punishment. The Human Rights Watch report is another data point in a pile of evidence that suggests drug criminalization doesn't do much more than ruin a lot of people's lives. 
At the very least, a world without those kinds of drug laws would avoid this sort of social carnage. So decriminalization taken alone doesn't solve problems, right? It removes some barriers. It means that maybe somebody who would have been hiding their drug use will be able to actually use drugs in front of other people who might help them, and it might save them from an overdose. But the reality is, uh, if you want to have an impact on the health issues, you also need to pair the decriminalization with substantial investments. The challenges that we've had in the United States have been around the lack of investment in housing, in healthcare, in evidence-based treatment for drug use, and in harm reduction programs, which are aimed at mitigating the harms associated with drug use. And harm reduction services like New York's overdose prevention centers, which do provide that supervision while somebody is is using drugs, um, like needle exchange, like drug checking services, fentanyl test strips, and evidence-based treatment are essential to connecting people to broader supports and in some cases, potentially to recovery. When we come back, we'll return to the East Harlem Clinic that Tony Duffin visited this summer, the one that claims to have prevented hundreds of overdoses through supervised drug use. It just might offer a blueprint for what a well-supported decriminalization looks like. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back. Let's return to the On Point Clinic in East Harlem, New York. While we were putting together this episode, every single person we interviewed, Tara in Portland, Ken in Baton Rouge, Maria in Washington, D.C., talked about the importance of preventing deaths from overdoses. It's at the heart of their work. Tony Duffin shares a pretty vivid picture of what it looks like when somebody takes too much of a certain drug. When people overdose on opiates, people's skin go pallid, their lips go blue, they're unconscious, they stop breathing. Essentially, their breathing is being suppressed and they're slipping away. Um, and that's when you administer things like naloxone and oxygen and you intervene. And this is exactly what the on-point staff is doing at their New York clinics. Essentially, through intervening when someone injects or smokes too much of a drug, the staff has prevented overdoses that, had the users been taking drugs out on the street rather than in the clinics, would have almost certainly killed them. OnPoint says it's prevented more than 1,000 overdoses. And out of those, the staff has only had to call an ambulance and send a user to hospital 17 times. So if you have only called out 17 ambulances, you've saved an awful lot of money in what's called 
pre-hospital emergency care. So it has huge ramifications and it's very important to, uh, to prevent these deaths. They are premature deaths. People don't intend to overdose. And when you think about people passing away, Obviously, a huge tragedy for the individual, but then their family, their children, their parents, their aunts, their uncles, their friends, the, the ramifications are huge, you know. Could more overdose prevention centers be the solution to fixing America's drug problem? Tony Duffin thinks so. If unfortunately you have a problem with drugs and you find yourself walking in that door, you just get this really welcoming environment where all the barriers are stripped away from the things that you're ashamed of that you can't talk about. You go in, you explain what your situation is, you sit down, you prepare and take your drugs. While you're doing that, people are talking to you normally. You know that if something terrible happens, an overdose, that they're going to save your life. In many ways, New York represents a kind of middle ground between Oregon's decriminalization approach and Louisiana's war on drugs. Before he left office, Mayor Bill de Blasio authorized the establishment of overdose prevention centers like OnPoints. And the current mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, wants the clinics to stay open too. But under federal law, they're considered illegal because they permit the use of controlled substances like fentanyl and crack. And so Manhattan's top prosecutor is threatening enforcement action against the clinics. Time will tell if they actually stay open. So... I live a few miles south of Portland, Oregon, and one of the things you can't really get away from if you live anywhere near this town is this narrative that Portland is falling apart, that downtown is a war zone, and there's drug addicts and houseless folks everywhere, and it's all supposedly because left-wing activists have ruined the city. In reality, that's a convenient fairy tale for the Fox News crowd, but it's not much more than that. The downtown core has taken a beating in large part because a lot of the companies that used to rent office space there moved out during the pandemic and never came back. But it's also true that if you head to certain parts of the city, the Pearl, Chinatown, pretty well anywhere around West Burnside where it meets the river, you might see folks using drugs, or hanging out outside the treatment centers or the shelters. And for the most part, that'll be the extent of the interaction. You'll see these people and that's it. But for a lot of folks, seeing as the problem. So long as this stuff and the people engaged in it are shuttered away in a dark alley or a basement or a prison cell somewhere, hidden from view, it's fine. And whatever policy achieves that is the right one. It doesn't much matter whether people overdose or die, so long as we can't see it. The without of it all turns out to be a battle between a world without punitive drug laws and a world without the appearance of drug users. And that's what decriminalization activists like Portland's Tara Hurst are really up against. A huge swath of polite society that would rather drug users die than take up any space at all. And there's only so much time decriminalization policies will have to prove they work before a lot of those nervous folks go back to the conventional wisdom, the sort of thing Louisiana's representative John Stefanski is pushing, that drug use is a sin and prison is the only penance. Without is a production of Hyperobject Industries and Sony Music Entertainment. It is written and hosted by me, Omar Alakad. It's executive produced by Claire Slaughter and Harry Nelson. And this episode is produced by Abby Fentress Swanson with editorial support from Emile Klein. Our associate producer is Kendra Hanna with fact-checking by Fendel Fulton and production support from Zaley Mahone. 
Our theme music, sound design, and mixing is by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. And research is by Sarah Mathis. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more next week. Cavoodle with a V. Cavoodle. It's a Cavalier King Charles poodle, but I love saying Cavoodle. Hey, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>